Hi, Housing News listeners. This is Alcina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. Today, you'll be listening to Episode 2 of Season 4 of the Housing News Podcast. In today's episode, Robert Dietz, the Chief Economist and Senior Vice President of Economics and Housing Policy at the National Association of Home Builders, joins the Housing News Podcast to discuss how the nation's home builders have fared during the COVID-19 pandemic. During the interview, Dietz discusses how a national shortage of housing inventory and rising lumber prices have contributed to an increase in construction costs, which is making it much harder for builders to introduce affordable supply to the housing market. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Now more than ever, homeowners and borrowers of the future need to understand impacts and options during times of financial hardship. Freddie Mac has made home possible for 50 years and is committed to providing assistance and clarity to the housing market. Through All for Home SM efforts, Freddie Mac Single Family is leading the future of housing through insights, education, mortgage, and business solutions. Learn more about resources to help you and the clients you serve at sf.freddiemac.com slash affordable lending. Thank you for listening, and here's the second episode of Season 4 of the Housing News Podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, and this is the Housing News Podcast. I'm happy to introduce our guest today, Robert Dietz, the Chief Economist and Senior Vice President for Economics and Housing Policy at the National Association of Home Builders. Robert, it's great to have you here. Welcome to Housing News. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to join you today. You know, we have a lot to talk about today. Home building is front and center again. Um, given the inventory shortage and lumber prices, and I'm really excited to dive into those topics. You know, but first, we like to get to know our guests a little bit, so let's start there. Um, you have a PhD in economics from Ohio State, so what drew you to study economics? Well, as a, as a student, I was always interested in history and, and government, particularly American history. Um, I was good at math and science, but maybe a little less interested in physics. So economics was an interesting blend of, of all those fields, and it was a great way to study growth and development of society. Um, I also liked maps, so I was drawn in particular to spatial economics, uh, which led me to uh, work in the, in the real estate sector. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, that, you know, I mean, there's so many different parts of economics you can go into, so it's very, it's a very specific area. I was really interested in how things occurred on, on maps and uh, looking at local government policy and, and housing development and, and business location decisions. And those, of course, are, are key issues in the housing industry. One of your fields of expertise is taxation, and you worked on the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation, which advises members of Congress on tax legislation. You know, what were some insights you gained from working there that inform what you do today? Details matter a lot, uh, which is an easy thing to say just about uh, any any field. But uh, joint tax is one of those unsung institutions in D.C. Uh, they, they act like a referee uh, scoring tax bills to say how much a particular policy change would raise or, or lose in revenue. And uh, of course, no one really likes a referee. But uh, working there was great because you got into the nitty gritty details of the intersection of economics and, and tax law. And it gave me three years to really kind of study housing from that really kind of detailed congressional policy perspective, uh, which was useful because when I first came to the National Association of Home Builders, I did tax and policy work uh, there for my first 10 years. So 
before becoming chief economist. And tax law really is critical for real estate. Um, just as an example, in 2008 to 2010, I did a lot of work on the, uh, the home buyer tax credit back from the, the Great Recession. So interesting to see the the kind of uh, crossover that you get in something like that that you wouldn't necessarily think oh this is a you know this is going to be so helpful but clearly it is. Yeah, and and tax law is not something they teach you when you go and get a PhD in economics. Uh, and I was sort of uh, learning it, kicking and screaming it as I went away. But as I said, details matter a lot, and uh, there's there's models and there's data, and then there's the real world. And uh, joint tax really deals with the the nitty gritty real world details. Uh, which you really have to examine when you look at uh, business sectors or look at how policy is going to affect uh, real people and real businesses. Yeah, super interesting. Um, let's talk about home building specifically. We're going to dive in. We all know there's a housing inventory shortage, right? I, I think every other uh, story that we write about it, we you know we have to bring it up because it's driving so many other things, right? It's driving so many other factors here. But um, can you give us some perspective on where we are now compared to where we've been at maybe historically? Yeah, some work that my team at NHB has done, I, I think we have a housing deficit of about a million homes. And that's the combination of both uh, apartments and single family homes. Uh, estimates vary. I think most economists agree there is a housing deficit. Uh, Freddie Mac had an estimate of about uh, two and a half million homes as a, as a shortage. And you, you can see the critical impacts that that shortage has. Uh, you know, one, it's, it's driven up home prices faster than incomes during the, the post-Great Recession period. And that, of course, has uh, led to declines in housing affordability. But also just the demographics. You've got more young adults living with their parents. In fact, uh, using 2018 data, uh, we found that uh, we've gone from about one in 10, 25 to 34 year olds living with their parents to one in five. So that rate has has doubled uh, just over the last couple of decades. So it's it's a function of uh, at its at its base, we're we're not building enough homes. And if you take a look at this year's data, for example, uh, we expect to build about uh, a little under nine hundred thousand single-family homes this year. And based on demographics, uh, we probably need to be building about one point one to one point two million, uh, and that's what's necessary for both population growth building second homes and building homes that are removed from the stock due to fires or disaster or just age. So the, the deficit continues uh, and uh, there's a lot of complicated reasons uh, for, uh, for that deficit, uh, but certainly policymakers could help us by helping to bend the cost curve and uh, build more apartments and, and build more single family homes. Well, let's get into that a little bit as far as like, you know, why isn't it that easy? It, your average consumer would be like, well, we just need more homes. Let's just build more homes, right? <laughs> What's the problem? We've got land, let's build homes. Uh, you know, tell us some of the reasons why it's just not that easy. Yeah, over the last five years, I think we, we learned to categorize this in a kind of an easy to remember way, which was uh, what I was calling the, the five L's. They were the, the limitations on residential construction. Uh, so uh, the first is, is labor. Uh, the industry has faced, uh, for at least the last five years, a skilled labor shortage. Uh, it is something that is ongoing, despite the fact that we have uh, near double-digit unemployment in the United States. We need to train workers into the industry. Uh, land and lots are scarce in markets where people want to live. And of course, that drives up the cost of not just single-family homes, but also apartments. Uh, lending to builders is, is a challenge. That's the third L. 
And often I think in housing, when we think of lending, we obviously think of mortgages, but this is lending to builders, what we call acquisition development and construction loans, AD and C loans. And uh, you know, about three quarters of single family homes, for example, are financed by the builder going to a community bank and getting a loan. And if they can't get that loan, uh, the building simply doesn't take place because the land's not acquired and developed and the construction doesn't take place. So that's been an important uh, limiting factor, uh, particularly since the Great Recession. On the, on the fourth L, it's uh, laws and, and regulatory burdens. And of course, those drive up the cost of construction, which then price out households from the market. Uh, we've done some work over the last few years finding that about a a quarter of a typical newly built single family home's price is due to various kinds of regulatory burdens at the state, local, and national level. And it's actually even higher for apartments. It's about a third of the typical apartment construction cost. And then the last uh, L uh, is lumber and materials. And clearly when building materials are expensive, uh, it acts as a limiting factor in how much construction can take place. You know, uh, let's let's dive into the the lumber prices a bit. We reported last week, based on your numbers, um, they've risen so much since COVID nineteen. Um, can you tell us what the impact those have been on house prices? It's it's been amazing to watch the run up in lumber prices uh, since the the story that you ran. You know, we we've, we've got to update those numbers uh, still more, just based on the data that I was looking at this morning. Uh, in terms of current pricing, uh, it's running right now at about little under $940 per thousand board feet, but that marks almost a 170% increase since mid-April. Uh, so we're, we're, getting, we're approaching a near tripling of lumber prices if we continue along this path for a few more weeks. The impact is, as you said, it, it's, it's causing home prices on the, the newly built side to go up. Uh, right now, that impact is easily $16,000 per single family home and about $6,000 for a newly built uh, apartment. So as this filters through the marketplace, it does mean that home buyers are gonna have to expect to pay somewhat more uh, for new construction. And we're increasingly hearing about remodeling projects, uh, custom home builds uh, being delayed or deferred in hopes that lumber prices uh, will, will come back down. Uh, the, the challenge is that uh, we, we simply do not produce enough lumber domestically for our needs. Uh, in fact, we, we import about a third of our, our lumber, uh, with the vast majority of that coming from Canada. And unfortunately, the, uh, the Trump administration established a tariff on Canadian lumber. It's a 20% effective tariff rate, and it's one of the factors that causes volatility in, in lumber pricing. So, you know, if we want to improve uh, lumber pricing, if we want to build more homes and apartments, uh, certainly it would help if we suspended those tariffs. Uh, but we also have to find ways to, to increase the output from uh, sawmills. Uh, and that's a labor challenge and as well as a, a regulatory one when it comes to lands that uh, can be used to harvest timber. You know, and thinking about that and what's going on in California right now, too, uh, you know, talked about inventory shortage, we're talking about lumber prices, but a fire, you know, raging fires over large, large areas of our country don't help in either one of those things. Those homes have to be rebuilt further putting us in the hole for the for housing inventory. But also, I mean, I, I would think at least some of that is, you know, land that might be used for forestry. I don't know. I think that's exactly right. Uh, some uh, European analysts have pointed out that uh, U.S. forestry practices are uh, 
uh, in desperate need of updating, uh, that uh, in some areas we let the uh, force uh, become too dense and thus they become fire hazards. Uh, clearly one way of, of, of thinning out and, and maintaining and conserving force would be allowing for some additional harvesting. But whether it's a trade solution or, or a domestic lumber uh, solution, uh, the, the real challenge right now, if you talk to builders, is that their, their costs are going up. Uh, and we know that housing has been a, a bright spot for the economy, but I've been saying in recent weeks that, that that bright spot could flicker if we continue to see lumber price gains. You know, so much of this seems to be very um, policy-driven, as, as you've said. So you know, here we have an election coming up pretty quick here. Uh, are, depending on the outcome of that election, do you feel like some of these factors could be uh, much different one way or the other? Or do you feel like, you know, six months from now, no matter who is in the White House or what administration we're, we're living under, that, that some of these issues are the same? I think the easy answer, particularly for an economist, is to say that elections matter, uh, but some of the fundamental forces uh, continue. Um, so, you know, if you, we go back, for example, to the five L's, uh, the, the law and regulatory impact is, is clearly a big one. And that's a case where housing policy is a function of other kinds of policies. So I am concerned about some of the regulatory issues, uh, particularly if we uh, get a switch in the White House uh, where we can see some costs go up. Uh, much of home building are small businesses, uh, that includes remodelers as well. So I'm a little bit concerned about some potential tax hikes uh, that could uh, harm the, the, the business side of the sector. But, you know, we're not Democrats or Republicans, we're, we're housers in this space. And I think if you look at uh, where you've got some of the really tight policy issues that limit the amount of housing that's available, it often comes down to state and local levels. So the focus clearly is on the national election, but it's, it's the, the yard by yard gains at the state and local level and trying, trying to reduce regulatory burdens, fight exclusionary zoning, uh, you know, those kinds of things that, that drive up the cost of construction that really matter uh, for ordinary home buyers and renters. Very interesting. And, and it makes sense, right? Uh, real estate's local, zoning is local. <laughs> Many of these things that are going to impact, you know, what that looks like are local. Um, so thanks for, for giving us that insight. You know, when you consider the challenges facing the traditional building process, I mean, lumber is just one example. What is the appetite for alternatives, whether that's alternative materials or prefab and ship instead of building on site or, or really just considering unorthodox methods altogether? Home building is an interesting sector because we, we haven't seen a lot of gains in productivity, for example in the sector over the last few decades. It's slow to change. Uh, some of that is uh, decentralization, uh, but some of it's just the hard facts on the ground. Uh, so one area that's received a lot of attention in recent years of dealing with, for example, the, the skilled labor shortage or the, the run-up in, in building material pricing that you mentioned is increasing the share of single-family construction that's built by modular, which is 3D factory-built type home construction and, and panelized construction panelizes 2D where the, the frames of the home are built in the factory and then assembled on the work site. The challenge there is that uh, all housing is local, as you mentioned, uh, and uh, uh, the industry is very decentralized. So, so building a centralized factory to service the industry doesn't get you a lot of market share right away. In, in fact, if you look at the data on the modular and panelized shares of the industry, they're, they're less than 4% 
of single family construction. So uh, whether it's labor issues or material issues, I, I think there's some possibility for increasing uh, the productivity of the, of the sector through innovation. Uh, I think we'll see some market gains, for example, for modular and panelized, but it's worth keeping in mind that in the late 1990s, that 4% share was actually closer to 7%. So it's lower now than it has been historically. So maybe we'll, we'll grow up into the, uh, the high single digits, and then that can uh, provide some, some cost benefits in particularly geographically concentrated markets. You know, when I, when I ask that question, you know, where's the appetite? I guess, I guess I should back up and be like, where does the appetite for change come from, uh, from your perspective? Is that something where it's like local communities or, or home builders, um, I'm sorry, homeowners who want, who want to buy a specific kind of house or looking for a certain price point? It's like, where does the pressure come to make some of those changes? Yeah, so it, it comes from home buyers ultimately, uh, working through builders, working through remodelers. And uh, sometimes we have issues in the space where a particular change is, is oversold, uh, that its benefits are, are somewhat exaggerated or it, or it creates uh, additional concerns. Um, and I think that's the reason that we see that the, the space is uh, slow to change. But the, the skilled labor shortage really is an, an issue that will persist beyond uh, the, the current virus challenge. Uh, and that could lead to changes in both worker recruitment, worker training, the share that's done on a modular or panelized basis, which will then ultimately prov provide cost benefits uh, to home buyers. But of course, there's challenges in the space. Uh, people have specific design requirements uh, when it comes to housing, uh, and uh, you know, not every method is, is going to fit. The marketplace provides, and ultimately, it's home buyers and, and renters who, who make those kinds of demands. We've seen a wave of innovation and optimization, you know, in the mortgage loan process, especially in the last, say, five years. Given the very different constraints, you know, uh, of physical construction, what are some of the changes we're seeing in home building? I think a lot of the innovation right now we see is on the design side, um, offering a better product. So whether it's it's smart homes using uh, technology, uh, energy efficiency, improving the, the building envelope of homes and uh, making them more resilient or, or cost less with respect to utility bills. Uh, those are all good things. Uh, power production, uh, that's an area that I've been interested in uh, for the last 10 years in terms of new construction. Uh, there's something called the Section 25D tax credit that provides a, a federal credit for installing solar panels, geothermal heat pumps, fuel cells, wind turbines, basically allowing the home to become a, a power production center, which I think is is going to be a change that we will continue to see over the, the next couple of decades. Um, so that continues. It affects new construction. It affects remodeling because, of course, one of the big areas where we get a bang for the buck in terms of innovation is improving the existing housing stock, which in turn has nice impacts for the, uh, the resale market. Uh, and I mentioned the skilled labor shortage. I, I think we will continue to see some innovation there in terms of how we, we use labor and, and increase our, our productivity. But I think in terms of some of the big changes that we're seeing right now, it gets back to what we started with, uh, which is a discussion of geography. Uh, we see clear evidence in the NAHB Home Building Geography Index that we're seeing faster growth for single family construction and apartment construction in lower density markets. And this is being driven by cost. It's uh, being driven by concerns over density related to the virus. And uh, frankly, it's uh, due to regulatory burdens that drive up costs, particularly in higher density markets. So building, 
single family homes, multifamily homes is spreading out more into the suburbs, the exurbs, even some of the rural markets. And generally th speaking, I, I think that's a good thing because it does mean uh, additional choice and options for consumers and buyers and renters. And of course, that's all being enabled by telecommuting and being able to work at home, which itself then is connected to trying to innovate homes to use them for more purposes, to, to work, to study, and of course, to live in. You know, one of the stories that we've been talking about and, and all living out in our lives is exactly that whole kind of like, you know, I need a home office or we need two home offices or whatever it might be. Um, you know, do you, when, you, when you're doing build, home building, you've got a long runway, you've got a long timeline. How, how do you, as home builders, how do you incorporate some of those things that people are like, you know, we, we need this now, right? Like, we want this right now. How do you, how do you bring that into the design in a, in a quick fashion? There's a lot of smart people in the industry. Uh, making a design change on the fly is, is difficult to do, particularly when you have, you know, kind of uh, fixed uh, uh, plans for architecture and the like. But those changes are being made. And I, I was sort of laughing when you said we need two, two offices. Uh, my own home, I live in a small townhouse in Arlington, Virginia. I need four home offices <laughs> between my wife and my, my twin boys. Um, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a job for, for builders to respond to the marketplace. I think that is happening. We see that in our surveys that uh, design requirements are being asked of uh, in terms of how the, the United States is reshaping itself, uh, both in, before a vaccine comes and then uh, the expected changes that will persist after a vaccine. I, I do believe that will include more working from home. But then it also means uh, remodeling. And I think it's remodelers who are at the tip of the spear in terms of trying to make some of those needed adjustments to the existing housing stock. And we're seeing gains, not just in terms of exterior repairs, that was big as we, we went into the lockdown part of uh, the, uh, the spring of 2020, but now these design uh, changes, adding in home offices, uh, workout spaces and the like, and, and that's an area where remodelers that can play an important role. You know, you talked about um, just the historic number of uh, people living with parents um, into their, you know, into their 20s and how that's now one in five, I think you said, which is yes. uh, a large number. Uh, considering when you look at like, what is it that they're, that they're waiting for? And we know that there are economic reasons for that. But like, when you consider that the, the homes of even the next five years how do you know what that person's looking for? And, you know, is that what's driving some of the smart homes or the, um, the more ecologically friendly homes? Like, how are you tapping into what the future homeowners are going to want? You do a lot of surveys. <laughs> so uh, my team at NHB uh, produces a report every two years called What Home Buyers Really Want. Uh, that's actually in the field right now. We'll, we'll roll out the, the new version of that uh, come the start of 2021. I know large builders do their own surveys, building consultants do their surveys, uh, and you, you focus a lot on demographics. Uh, so, you know, we, as a Gen Xer, I often sort of hate talking about the millennials, but the, the millennials are such a large generational group. And so they're in that, that home buying stage of life. Uh, and so uh, they, they've done things later in life. They went to school longer. They're the most educated generation in, in American history. Uh, they're getting married later. They're having kids later. Um, but, and, and buying homes later. Uh, and so they're now uh, you know, entering that marketplace. And I think that's why we see rising demand uh, for single family homes. And uh, it's not an official forecast, but maybe one of the consequences as we come out of this uh, challenge with the virus will be a small baby boomlet. 
particularly for that generational cohort that's uh, put off having kids and now seems to be very focused on single family homes. Yeah, fellow Gen Xer here, and, and definitely uh, interesting to see on. <laughs> you know, we we see the baby boomers and the uh, and the next generation, the millennials coming up, and can see the the difference there. Very interesting. Um, I I guess I'd want to close this with just asking you. You know, we're, we're we're having this whole discussion about housing inventory shortage, and you know, if there's something that the message you could get out to, like we all we all care about this. This is something that is uh, of interest to everyone in our industry. And then, but you talked about the local, if you could encourage people to do one thing to actually change the housing inventory shortage in our, in our industry, what would it be? Get involved at the local level in terms of policy, because I think if we're thinking about the low hanging fruit that limits our ability to add single family homes to inventory, limits the, the amount of apartment inventory that's uh, accessible, particularly as a form of affordable housing, uh, it really comes down to things like zoning laws. Uh, and often we see in housing that nimbyism, not in my backyard type thinking, tends to crowd out uh, development. And ultimately the people who pay are younger households. So one of the, the encouraging things that we saw in recent years was a rise of a, a YIMBY movement, yes, in my backyard. Uh, if uh, you know, people care about their, their kids and the next generation, they care about their community growing, they need to be part of that YIMBY movement. And uh, as a society as a whole, we need to oppose what we've called the, the bananas, which are the build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. Uh, mm -hmm. The people who are just outright opposed to any kind of construction, because ultimately uh, we know we have a housing deficit. And if a community is going to grow, it's going to have to add housing. And uh, one of the things that we see with this, this spreading out, this uh, expanding geography of where construction is taking place, is that people are voting with their feet. And they will leave markets where cost or the limits on inventory drive them out. Great point. Well, that's all the time we have. But Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your insights on uh, this critical topic. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and rate us on iTunes. Also, make sure to check out HousingWire's latest podcast, The Daily Download, which is a daily wrap of HousingWire's hottest stories, now available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. See you next week.